Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question for you. Why do octopus make good security guards? Because they're well armed. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's joke, definitely check out the Shark Whisperer series. I borrowed this joke from one of the characters in the book, the director of Sea Camp, Mike Davis. As you can tell, I thoroughly enjoy his humor. The author of the Shark Whisperer series is also a person with an excellent sense of humor and is today's guest on the show. Dr. Ellen Prager is a marine scientist and author, widely recognized for her expertise and ability to make science entertaining and understandable for people of all ages. She currently works as a freelance writer, consultant, and science advisor to celebrity cruises in the Galapagos Islands. She was previously the chief scientist for the Aquarius Reef Base Program in Key Largo, Florida, which includes the world's only undersea research station. And at one time, she was the assistant dean at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. Dr. Prager is sought after for her expertise on Earth and ocean issues and has appeared on many different broadcasting networks, including the Today Show and Good Morning America. She was also a consultant for the Disney movie Moana, which we do talk about today. In today's episode, we chat about The Verge of Conk, what it's like working and living in St. Croix in the Bahamas, how Dr. Prager influenced policy and created maps that are still being used today. We learn how Dr. Prager went from studying at a libertarian college in Connecticut to becoming a world-renowned researcher and marine science correspondent. And she also shares her favorite tales from the Galapagos Islands, including close encounters with sea lions, orcas, and humpback whales. Let's dive in. And welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So you have done quite a lot in your career and have been an amazing advocate for our oceans. It's been a lot of fun researching you. What started your lifelong passion for the ocean or like what got you into marine science? So I, as a, as a kid, I loved nature. I was, you know, the one out there climbing trees, jumping across streams and I, in high school, I was teaching swimming lessons, and the other lifeguards I worked with brought a scuba tank to the pool. And they said, hey, you want to try this? And I said, sure. Jumped into the pool with the scuba tank on, sat on the bottom of the pool, and said, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm not coming up. (laughs) So (laughs) I went back to my parents and said, I want to learn how to scuba dive. And they said, you have a job, a car, go for it. So... Um, then when I, so when I discovered scuba diving and I was always into nature and I liked science, when you put those together, it was kind of a natural for me and I was just hooked, so to speak. I love it. So you, when you were in Connecticut for your bachelor's degree, did you know at that point that you wanted to study marine science? 
Well, so I, I started taking, I took an oceanography class, and then I had the opportunity to take a semester away. I loved Wesleyan, was a fantastic uh, liberal arts, and they had a great science program, but they didn't have in-depth sort of oceanography or ocean science. And at the time, there was a very highly regarded program in St. Croix called the West Indies Laboratory. And so I took a semester program there studying tropical marine science, and it was definitely a turning point. I went back the following summer and worked as a safety diver for an undersea lab. And then after I graduated, I went back to the lab and worked as their all-around gopher lab assistant, diving assistant. And so the the professors there were my mentors. I really looked up to them. I wanted their jobs. <laughs> so it, it really started on my path, I think, when I was at West Indies Lab. Uh, and I also had really great professors that were very encouraging at Wesleyan as well. And so I think, but, but that West Indies lab experience was really what, you know, that decided it for me. Now you have your PhD. Did you know shortly after graduating from your bachelor's that you wanted to pursue higher education or did you take some time off and work a little bit and then figure that out? Well, I was working at the, the lab in St. Croix at the West Indies lab and I wasn't sure about going to graduate school, but all the the professors that I worked with basically said, Ellen, you have to go on to school. You know, you have to go to graduate school. You can't just stay, you know, this is what you need to do. And they really convinced me that it was the right move. And so I spent a year um, there working and learning a lot about how to do marine science. I learned so much about field work. It was it was really helpful for me. And when I, in fact, when I went back to get my master's, I had so much more field experience than most people. It really helped me get through my degree much faster than some other people. That makes sense. You kind of have the knowledge of how it's applied and where it's useful, and then right. obviously you learned a lot in the field, so you could bring that to the classroom too. Right. Right. Well, and for my, you know, I had to come up with my own project, and I had to figure out the logistics of the diving for my project and everything else. And I had already done that. And so, Mm. you know, they would say, now you have to plan and you have to prepare for this. And I'd be like, yep, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) So so it was really, it was really helpful for me. And then, so then, but then I also took a year off in between my master's and my PhD, just because I was kind of burnt out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I always tell students is, don't go to graduate school just to go to graduate school. You have to be ready to commit yourself. You know, mm-hmm. um, you have to be ready to learn and spend the time it takes to really focus. And I, I needed a, uh, some time off, so I uh, took a year in between my master's and my PhD, and I worked uh, for a little while. And, and then I actually got a great job, um, kind of a job. Uh, Peter Glynn, who is a really world-renowned coral biologist, asked me if I would go and help him on a project in the Galapagos for several months. Mm. And, and I, you know, it was, that was about a 10 second thought process of, right. yes. That's, that's, that's not a hard question to answer. <laughs> no. And so I went to the Galapagos with him and his graduate student to help them. And I lived in the Galapagos for two months. And as it turned out, that played a big role later on in me becoming the science advisor for celebrity cruise lines in the Galapagos from that experience. So you know, one of the things that I've learned along the way is that you never know where your path is going to take you and where one job may lead to something else. And so, you know, I would say that experience in the Galapagos really played a big role 
in what I've been doing for the past decade or so. It, it's amazing how formidable early experiences can be in shaping the rest of your career. It's oh, they do. And, and, I, and they are. And I think one of the things I've been really fortunate in that, you know, I, I, I'm always proactive asking for opportunities and I'm always willing to try things, even new things or, you know, try risky things. And I think sometimes um, students these days are, are maybe a little too adverse to try different things or they might be fearful of asking for opportunities. But what I always tell kids is the worst that somebody's going to say to you is no. The best is yes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a great story for, for kids, I think, is when I was a student at West Indies Lab, we did a field trip to this undersea habitat where scientists would go and live underwater. It's called Hydrolab. And I thought, again, I was like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. And so I, during the weekend, like on a Saturday, I had brought a bike with me. I biked across the island to the lab and asked if they had any summer jobs by myself. <laughs> and they said, oh, can you pick up these scuba tanks? I said, sure. And they said, are you certified? I said, yep. And they said, okay, you have a job. So I got a job as a safety diver for the undersea lab in between my junior and senior in college. And when I went back to the lab where there were 50 other students and told them that I got this unbelievable summer job, they were like, oh, my God, how did you get that? And I said, mm, I asked. Yeah. And, and it's a great lesson you know, for, for kids. You, you're not going to get opportunities unless you ask. I think it's a great lesson for anybody. I'm constantly learning that. Sometimes all you have to do is ask. Yep. And, and it's not, you know, if they had said no, it wasn't about me. You know, that wasn't a rejection of me. It was that there wouldn't have been an opportunity. And so I think sometimes we're afraid of rejection. But, it, you know, that you have to deal, you have to learn to deal with that. That's the only way you're going to make progress. It's very true. Very true. So. What did you study for your master's and your PhD? What was some of your research? So for my master's, I worked on <laughs> the slang, as we called them, scuzzballs, which is terrible. But they were, <laughs> they were um, these. You have some wonderful titles, and I'm excited to get, back, get into that a little bit later. <laughs> Let's hear well, about the scuzzballs. <laughs> the scuzzballs. <laughs> um, these were... Um, the scientific way to describe them are round concretions of um, coralline algae. So they're <laughs> they algae that create a skeleton of calcium carbonate, the same material that a skeleton of corals, but algae creates it. And there are certain places in the world, not very many, where their conditions are just right, then instead of creating what looks like a plant, they create balls of it. And so I studied this very specific place in about 100 feet of water off the coast of Florida, um, off of like Molasses Reef and French Reef area, a, a narrow band of area where we discovered these, where they're called rotoliths, um, mm -hmm. although they weren't pure rotoliths when we discovered that's not exactly what they were, but we, just, we studied those off the Florida Reef track, and I was looking at how they form, where they were, why were they formed there? And, and one of the reasons is because they're more common in the ancient past and to try and understand what past environments are like. You kind of want to understand what today's are and, mm. and also just trying to understand how these things form. So that was my master. So it was kind of, what I liked about it, it was a combination of marine biology, geology, because they were kind of rocks, and also physical oceanography because that played a role as well. So that, and then for my PhD, I actually went, to go work with a, a professor named Harry Roberts who studies 
he at the time had been doing a lot of well, one of the few people studying physical oceanography in reefs. And that was something I was really interested in. And so I went to work with Harry and we tried to get a project going in Fiji. But at the time, there was no funding for reef work. Nobody was funding coral reef work. Oh, and, man, you're just a couple years too early. I know, I know. So we, <laughs> we didn't get any funding for that. And I ended up doing some computer modeling of circulation in a bay in southern Louisiana, which was not what I had intended to do or was necessarily what my great interest was. But looking back on it, I learned a whole lot about computer modeling, physical oceanography, and coastal dynamics that I wouldn't have if, if I hadn't done that. So it, it wasn't what I wanted, but you have to, you know, I, I learned a lot from it. So there were, there were advantages to it. And now your computer modeling came handy later, right? Well, you know, my computer modeling came handy later. I mean, after that, I taught for Sea Education Association in, in Woods Hole, where I would teach six weeks on shore and then take my students out to sea for six weeks on a tall sailing ship. So that was fantastic. I worked with the U.S. Geological Survey. I worked in the Bahamas. Yeah, I've had lots of great jobs. With the Sea Education Association in Woods Hole, you said the voyages were six weeks. What did you teach? Well, we taught marine biology. We taught marine geology. We taught oceanography. But so you take your, it was it was an oceanography class, but you, all those things play a role. And then we would also, when we would take our students out to sea, they would each have an independent research project. And so we would also work with them on that. So it was... And, and again, my background was helpful in that it was kind of diverse because I was teaching geology, biology, and oceanography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, and you mentioned it in passing just now, but one of the things that has always fascinated me is the underwater lab Aquarius. And for my listeners that are not familiar, it's in 60 feet of water in the Florida Keys. And it's an underwater research facility where you can actually live underwater for days at a time. And Ellen, you were the chief scientist for Aquarius. I was. I spent a couple of years as their chief scientist, and and I also got to do two missions. So twice now I've lived underwater, one for one week and one for two weeks. Wow. So what were you studying and what did being a chief scientist mean? So those they're sort of two different things. So when I did my missions, one mission we were doing detailed surveys of corals and algae and, and sponge and fish. And those would be repeated every couple of years to look and see how the reef around Aquarius was changing. So that was one, one mission I was working on those surveys. And we were also testing some new equipment that they had put down. And then the second mission I did was actually part of uh, Bob Ballard's Jason project. And we, were, we actually broadcasted five shows a day live from underwater. So that and we and we were we talked about the habitat, we talked about the coral reef and the fish. And so those were those were the things that I focused on for the missions. As chief scientist, my job was to oversee um, all of the science and work with the operations team on getting the science done, getting the scientists in there, uh, making sure everybody had what they needed, also working with the university and the government about funding for the lab and funding for science. So it was pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. What was it like living underwater for a week and then two weeks at a time? Oh, I loved it. So <laughs> what what it, it gives you time and access. So if you live underwater, 
you have six to nine hours diving down to 100 feet. And if you were doing that from the surface, you might only have 15 minutes a day. So you can imagine if you're doing work underwater, having six to nine hours versus 15 minutes a day is a lot different. Mm -hmm. And so that's the advantage. Now, the other kind of cool things that happen are, like if you're working in a specific site every day, your commute sort of takes you by the same big sponge and you get to see that, oh, look, there's a moray eel that lives in that sponge. Oh, look, this, this coral, there's always these fish around them. And one of the things that was really fun for me is I loved seeing the change from day to night and night to day. At, in the mornings, all the fish that are nocturnal feeders would come off the reef and hide out around the Aquarius lab, like an artificial reef. And then the fish that go out during the day would head out. So it would be like a change of shifts. <laughs> and you could also see it was fun because also you could watch the water go from black to kind of this royal blue to a little bit lighter. And then you would see shafts of sunlight coming through. And then it would be daytime. So you got to see things that you didn't if you were just diving down momentarily from the surface. That's incredible. What a cool experience. Oh, it was wonderful. And I and both times I did it, I had a wonderful team. Uh, one time it was five guys and myself. <laughs> and the and another time it was um, Sylvia Earle and myself with the women and the four guys. And both times we had just great camaraderie and work ethic and you know, you want to be able to work hard, but have fun too down there. Of course. Yeah. Especially, you know, tight living quarters, you kind of have to good sense of humor. Exactly. And you have to be able to pitch in with everything that needs to be done. Absolutely. You work for the U.S. Geological Survey. What was your role there? Well, I started out doing research um, in Florida Bay. I was looking at sediments and wave dynamics. I did a great project with my colleague, uh, Bob Hallen. We actually mapped all of the habitat of Florida Bay. And to this day, people are still using that map. Wow. So I'm really proud of the, of the work that I did with the U.S. Geological Survey and with Bob. I think um, it was very productive. And I think we, we provided information that people are still finding useful today. So that was great. Yeah. And that's no small feat. Florida Bay is not small. No. Oh, no. It was, it was quite a summer project. <laughs> uh, I bet. What did that look like? Were you on the boat almost 12 hours a day, like side scan sonar mapping it? Well, we would go down for a week or two at a time and we'd go out in a small boat and we would do, um, use snorkels and, and we would measure the sediment depth. We would mm-hmm. note the bottom types. We would take cores. And then what we would also do is combine that with looking at satellite images. So Mm -hmm. we could determine what the bottom type was based on the satellite image. And then we would go ground truth it. And then we could create the map based on that. Very Um, cool. Yeah, it was really interesting, Uh, exhausting, but really it was a great project. And then I moved from the lab in St. Petersburg up to Washington to work more on public communication. And I was very fortunate at the time because there was a a national ocean conference and I got to be part of the planning committee for that um, and representing the U.S. Geological Survey. So that was great. That was overseen by the president and vice president. And so it was pretty exciting. That is really exciting. So you got to be in the field and help influence some policy. 
Yeah, so. and it got me familiar with Washington, and, and I, you know, I spent a couple years up there, and I got much more engaged in policy and and learned a lot about how Washington works, and so I think. I think that's also helpful. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what we are able to accomplish as far as conservation work is through policy, and that's kind of done at the Washington level, or at least the right. state capital level too. So right. it's definitely important work. It's very cool that you, it was so uh, tightly woven that you were doing field work, and then shortly thereafter, you got to go up to Washington and be a part of that. It, it was a real great learning experience for me, and I, I really enjoyed it. So one of the other things that was really cool on your resume is that you were a consultant on the Disney movie Moana. <laughs> that that seems to be the ultimate. I think so far, I'm, it's going to be hard to top that in my career, especially with young students. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and maybe Marvel will call you in the next one. Hey, I you can rival. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they should have called me for Aquaman. I don't know why I didn't get the call for Aquaman. I mean... <laughs> No. Do you know who they used for the consultant for that one? I don't know, but I loved working with Disney on Moana. I um, I did a video conference with some of their animators, but then I was actually out in California giving a talk at the Aquarium of the Pacific, and they invited me to come up to the studio, and I went to their auditorium, and I gave a talk to, I must have been at least 100 people working on the film. Wow. about, And I showed them what the conditions of the ocean can look like, and I answered their questions, and it was... It was really inspiring to be in a room with such creative people who they asked really good questions. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's funny because there was a line in the movie that came from what I taught them. So I was like, yes. <laughs> they says the movie it says, there's been a fish kill on the leeward side of the island. And that was from I from what I taught them. <laughs> so I was so excited. <laughs> I mean, part of what I do now is I love the mix, making science entertaining or marrying the two. And so I would love, honestly, I would love to do more in that field. I love it. I mean, that's, that's definitely a career highlight for sure. I get to work with. Oh yeah. So you've done quite a bit of outreach in your career. What inspired you to take that step further and write books? So, you know, it's funny, again, this is for everybody out there. I, it's not something I ever expected I would be doing. I never, I was not somebody who said, oh, I want to be a writer. But I started writing, um, I wrote a children's book was my first thing. I, I have this really fun collection of sand from all over the world. And I would bring it into the classrooms. A kid loved it so much that I thought, oh, this would make a fun little kid's book. And I drafted, I put it, I wrote a draft. I sent it to National Geographic and they bought it. It was wow, and so that started children's books, and then um, McGraw Hill contacted me and asked me if I would edit and write the introduction to a book about volcanoes, earthquakes, and tsunamis, and we're working with three experts. And I said, "Sure, that sounds. I'd like to do that. Sure." And um, it ended up that the scientists I was working with, two out of the three of them were really good scientists, but they couldn't really write for the public. Mm. And so I kind of ended up rewriting, either writing or rewriting their sections. And it started me on a path of realizing I love writing for the public much more than writing technical science. Mm -hmm. And so then it kind of just blossomed from there. Once I had done it once, I was like, wow, this is, this is exciting. Not only do I enjoy the writing, but the response from people was so good. 
you know, they were like, wow, I, you know, this is so easy to understand. You make, you make the science fun and informative. And so it sort of started me on, on a path towards writing more and more for the public. That's really cool. And it shows in your writing that you're so uh, passionate, enthusiastic about it too. I've read a couple of your books now and well, they're fun to read. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, and, and yeah, it's, you know, they've sort of evolved over time a little bit, but I now I, I really, my favorite thing is when I could put humor in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my early books, The Oceans, I really, I, I love, but it was really funny. The editor kept, he made me take out like all the bits of humor. He kept taking out. And what, I remember one of the reviews, and I don't know who it was, but it must be somebody who knows me because they said, this book, we like this book, but we would have liked to see more of the author's personality in it. <laughs> so I was like, yes, I was right. <laughs> I was vindicated. So, so then, you know, when I wrote, um, which I know one of the books you're probably referring to is my Sex, Drugs, and Sea Slime book. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was my reference to your love of titles earlier. <laughs> yes, yes. And that, you know, I was able to put a lot of humor and, and fun, you know, just really fun stories in that. And I really, that's, that may, that's one of my favorite things that I've written. I think that in the adventure series books. Yes. So your sex, drugs, and sea slime, I went to your talk and the lecture series, which is how I met you, which is very right. fun. Um, one, when you were writing the book, a few questions about it. Were you in the field at all, or were you kind of reaching out to different colleagues and using your own knowledge and kind of putting that in a more uh, digestible way for everybody to understand? So it was a combination of things. I did a lot of research in basic journals before we got into like genomics and like advanced molecular Mm -hmm. things. I went to some of the basic biology journals, some of them very early on about animals and their biology and physiology. I contacted a lot of my colleagues who I knew studied specific animals. I actually went to a couple of classrooms and said, hey, what do you guys think of the weirdest animals? And then I ran relied on some of my own knowledge, but it was a really a combination of research and, and what I already knew. What was the weirdest thing you learned or what surprised you the most when writing the book? A couple of things. One of the things that surprised me and, and led to, well, certainly some of the things I learned led to the new title because that wasn't the original title. <laughs> but uh, when I learned, you know, I learned that more animals were being used as either biomedical models or as in the search for pharmaceuticals than I ever knew. And so that's where the drugs came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how strange some of the reproductive strategies under the sea were. <laughs> so that's where the sex comes from. And then I also didn't realize how many of the ocean's organisms actually use mucus in some way, whether it's defense or to eat or to travel. So that's where slime came from. So those, those, but those were not things I planned ahead of time. <laughs> what What are some of the examples of the biomedical? One of the ones that popped in my mind when you mentioned that were uh, sponges and I think sea cucumbers were also used in the medical, right? Yeah, spon- well, sponges, because they use chemical defense. Mm-hmm. So scientists are very interested in sponges and in the chemicals that they use to defend themselves. Uh, so that's one. Um, the cone snail is a really big one because... Mm-hmm. There are something like 700 species, and they all have differing venoms. Mm -hmm. And one of the amazing things about some of the cone snails is that they can change the chemistry of their venom between strikes, which is incredibly unusual. 
And there's actually already a painkiller on the market from cone snail venom. And so, in fact, scientists think that they are the most pharmacologically promising organism on the planet. Interesting. I had a friend in college that worked in a conotoxin lab for a brief amount oh, of time. Really? And, and his, yeah. And he would come back with some interesting stories about what they're looking at it for. And co- cone snails are interesting. The whole, I mean, the ocean has amazing creatures, right? <laughs> it, it does. And, and in fact, now I think it's really the sort of the new rainforest in terms of looking for marine compounds that could be used as pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. What were some of the reproductive strategies? I know one of my favorites. I'll bring it up, but I want to. I want to hear what you've got. What was your? Oh my! Oh my gosh! There's there's so many. Um, <laughs> I think probably one of my favorite is the blanket octopus, where in most octopus the male has a specialized arm, and he passes a package of sperm from his body to the female. <laughs> but it. But in the blanket octopus, when he passes the package of sperm. He also self-amputates his arm and gives her that as well. You know, right? and I always say such self-sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> so that one's that one's kind of a weird one. Yeah, that's like a Picasso cutting off his ear for his lover, but the right, right, the whole arm. Yeah, there's also another one is the the angler fish where the, mm. the the female is a large fish and the male is very small. And what the male does is the male attaches the female and becomes like a parasite. <laughs> And lives the rest of his life attached to the female for and, reproduction. And they're looking at that. Scientists are looking at that for biomedical because it's it's interesting then because the female ang- anglerfish doesn't reject or her body doesn't expel the male anglerfish. It absorbs it instead. Right. Which is, you know, kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. It's really weird to think about. And one of two of my favorite strategies, one is coral spawning. It's always been because it's just this magical underwater experience. Have you seen it, correct? I have. I have. I've been out there and it's amazing because for those, for your listeners who haven't seen it, I mean, it happens at night and the corals release sperm and eggs and the eggs are released. Sometimes it's in a package altogether, but they're like these little pink balls. And what happens is they're all released synchronously at at the same time and they float up to the surface with the sperm and then worms and fish, all all types of animals come in to eat them. So it's like a feeding frenzy. So it's like you're in an upside down snowstorm. It's, it's incredible. Mm. And it's, it's amazing to think that there's, and we don't understand it completely, but there's something, some cue that causes them all to release it at the same time. So there's mixing of sperm and eggs from the different corals that can happen. If they didn't all release at the same time, that wouldn't work. So it is pretty magical. It really is. It really is. I think the other favorite, and I learned from you, is the conch's verge. (laughs) Yes. I love that it's, so the conch's verge is its penis. And I had no idea that it was called that. I really like the name verge. Could you explain how a conch meeting works? <laughs> ah, yes. Yes, the lovely conch. The biologists have been writing poems and limericks about the verge. So <laughs> what I always like to say is that, you know, if you think about the big male queen conch, this big shell sidles up to the female, and he has to get his verge outside of his shell around and under the female. So he has to be well endowed. So as, as Al Stoner, a fisheries biologist, told me, his penis is half his total body length. <laughs> 
And then as I, as I always like to tell people and in the book as well, but there's a little problem because once the verge is outside his shell and it goes under the females, crabs and eels are only too happy to take advantage of his vulnerabilities. But if that's okay, men, because they lose one, they grow another. Yes, the male queen conch can regenerate his penis. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I like, I don't, uh, it's amazing. It really it is, is amazing to think about. <laughs> It is, it, it is absolutely amazing. So I actually just finished this weekend your Tristan Hunt Shark Whisperer book. And oh. was on, I just read the first one. Now I want to read the next two. I've really <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, but in it, Tristan takes a field trip over to Lee Stocking Island and has adventures. Um, but there's a self-described dictator of the island. And in the afterword of the book... I learned that you were actually the dictator at one point of Lee Stocking Island. What was that experience like? Well, so I was the sort of associate director on the island. So I was the director of the lab on the island. Right. And uh, a friend of mine used to call me, that was the joke, that she would call me the dictator because everybody <laughs> everybody who lived on the island worked for me. You know, So I was kind of the dictator. And it was um, it was pretty difficult. Uh, we had that year, we had 19 named storms, and part of my job was to call an evacuation. And so oh it was it was wonderful. I felt like I made a big difference in that lab in, in it, running it and getting the good people on board and fixing some things that need to be fixed. But at the same time, it was a very stressful time for me um, because when I got there, there were a lot of things that weren't working. There were the personnel were not as they should have been. They didn't have the skills they needed. So I had a lot to sort of recoup when I got there and fix. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was a beautiful place to live Mm -hmm. and to explore. So that part I loved, but it was a tough job. I believe it. How long were you there for? I was there for about a year and then there was some politics blew up and I, I bowed out because I didn't want to get in between some of the players. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to play politics and have to take a side, so I quit. Fair enough. Sounds amazing, though, living on an island in the Bahamas. It, for a short time, it was amazing. Yeah, you know, on your time off, you take a boat, you go explore, you go hiking or, you know, snorkeling or diving. Oh, yeah, that part was fantastic. So in the book, you describe two things that were really interesting one rainbow reef which is a real place i mean is it a still intact beautiful coral reef you know i don't i don't know um you know the the reefs there have never been they're not like australia or belize they're a little Mm -hmm. more scattered but i i don't know i don't know if they've been bleached or how they've been impacted by overfishing and climate change so it's hard to say i haven't been out out there since but it sure was nice having them there while I was, was there. Mm -hmm. And then you describe Oids. Oids? Oids. 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 Yes. Most people have never heard of Oids. Yeah. So could you kind of describe a little bit what an Oid is? Sure. So I like the name too. Yeah. They're like, they're like sand grains that look like pearls. They look Mm -hmm. like little pearls, little beads, white, very white beads they only form in a couple places in the world today. They were very common in the past, geologically. But they they form in the Persian Gulf and in the Bahamas. And what happens is you have some sort of a little 
nucleus that could be a fragment of a shell, and it's on the bottom. And it's because of waves or tides, it gets picked up off the bottom. The water in the, in the Bahamas is super saturated with calcium carbonate. And what happens is when that grain gets picked up in the water, a ring of crystals precipitates around it from the water. And then it gets laid down until the next tide or the next waves, and it gets picked up again. And then another layer of crystals gets precipitated around it. And over time, it grows. You can almost think of like tree rings, but they're crystals. And it creates this bead-like particle. And you get waves and sandbanks and, you know, huge amounts of these ooids. And in fact, the underlying ground under Miami is called the Miami oolite because it's a rock made of ooids. Interesting. Yeah, so that, but ooids, and it's really fun. When you jump down and you sort of sink up to your ankles on some places in the sand in ooids, it's an amazing feeling. That's cool. Definitely want to go check that out. Is the lab still there? I don't know. They were having some financial issues and, and issues with the people who are running it. So I don't know. I know, I suspect it may not be operating now. Okay. That's kind of sad. It is, it is kind of sad. I just have to take a boat over. <laughs> you have to take a boat over. You can, you can, you can boat over there in the Exumas. It's a beautiful area of the world. So we're coming back to the Galapagos, which kind of has been a common thread for a lot of your career. Is that what inspired your Escape Galapagos book? Well, it is. I uh, loved writing those Tristan Hunt books so mm-hmm. much that not only did I enjoy writing fiction that I could integrate humor, uh, some fun character stories, and science, we do being able to put all that together was really, I think it's something I really enjoy it. Out of all the writing I do, I think this sort of writing for middle grade fiction has turned into my favorite thing. (laughs) And um, after I had finished the three books in the Tristan Hunt series, unfortunately, my publisher wasn't open to a fourth book, even though I've, let me tell you, I've gotten a lot of requests to write a fourth book. You know, I, I would love to write another book in that, but unfortunately my, the publisher, they've had some problems and so they just weren't open to it. But I, I loved writing it so much and even more, I love the response from kids and parents, educators. It's been the most rewarding thing I've done. I have kids at, at book readings. I have kids give me hugs. I have had kids pass me secret notes and give me stuffed animals. Um, parents I had a parent write me a note saying my my son got caught reading your book under his desk in class and then she said but it's okay because he was reading (laughs) (laughs) and so having so much fun with that series I decided that I wasn't done writing for that age for middle graders and so I wanted to start a new series and everybody asks me about the Galapagos Mm -hmm. when they hear that I work there everybody wants to know about the animals about the islands and and so I thought you know this would be a great place to have a fun, you know, adventure story. And so that kind of gave me the idea of writing books all taking place in some wondrous location. Mm-hmm. And since I know the Galapagos so well, I thought I would start with the Galapagos and I know how, how interested people are. And so that's where the idea for the series is called The Wonderlist Adventures. And the first book is Escape Galapagos. 
It was really entertaining. I like that. Oh, thank well. you. Thank you so much. I loved, you know, I love writing these books. It's so much fun. And, you know, sometimes I get stuck with, with writer's block, like, what should happen next? And then it'll be like, oh, I know. I know what I could put in there. <laughs> Wouldn't it be crazy if, I liked, I liked at the end of the book, you were like separating out the real science behind or versus what you kind of made up. I thought that was a really nice touch as well. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I, and I have to say, that's one of my favorite parts now. When I go out and give talks, mm-hmm. I, I play a, like, it's like a game at the back. I, I wrote, I read those and I test the audience and I say, <laughs> okay, which do you think that, is this real or made up? And it's so much fun. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter if they are senior citizens or little kids. Everybody loves that game, real versus made up. It's so <laughs> much fun. And so my next book in the next escape book, I'm going to actually make that section longer because I've had so much fun with my audiences with that part of it that I want to do more with that. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I, I enjoyed it. It tested me a little bit, especially with the <laughs> tortoises. I don't want to give anything away, but the tortoise one, I was like, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. And there's another, there's another one about when, when a, a, a woman's walking stick breaks Yes. in the marina guan which in a carpet of marina guanas that one is a tough one yeah i'm not gonna we, i don't want to give that away <laughs> that was great so could you explain why the galapagos are so special not not just to you obviously they are but in general it's a really amazing location and place so there are a couple of things that have made the location and the wildlife very unusual so the Galapagos are remote from any big landmass. They're the closest is 600 miles to the coast of South America. Mm-hmm. So they're remote. They are volcanic islands, and they're at a hot spot like Hawaii. So they're origins in volcanic, and so you have fairly young islands, maybe 100,000 years old or 300,000 years old, up to a couple million years old, um, and you also have say four, three or four different ocean currents coming from different directions impinging on the Galapagos. So you have a, a, a current that brings warm water from the north, you have a current that brings cold water from the south, and then you also have a current, a submerged current called the equatorial undercurrent that hits the base of the Galapagos, on the western Galapagos, and then brings very nutrient-rich water up to the surface, and it acts like fertilizer to feed plankton. And the plankton then feed fish, and the fish then feed birds and sea lions. And so you have a very productive food web. So if you put all those things together, the remoteness of the islands, the volcanic origin, and the ocean setting, you've created this very unique and special environment. And so, for instance, the animals that get there have to get there by maybe drifting on a raft of debris or blown in in a storm. And then they stay there and they don't interact with the mainland. And over time, they evolve and change and become new species because they don't leave the islands. And so, so not only do you have a, a strange mix of animals, you have a lot of, a lot of animals that you don't find anywhere else in the world. And because of the, the differences in currents, one of the things I always love is that you have this mix of You'll be swimming with sea turtles and sharks and tropical fish. And then next thing you know, a penguin went by. <laughs> and, so, and they're the smallest 
the second smallest penguins and the farthest northern penguins. And so it's this very strange mix of animals. Amazing. And it's also considered more or less Darwin land. It's kind of what inspired the, the uh, origin of species and first theories of evolution because it's so remote and all these, he noticed all these different species that were living there that were similar to back home or similar to a different species they saw on a, a Galap- different Galapagos island. Right, right. But you, it, it, you can see that the animals have adopted, uh, have adapted and evolved over time to match their conditions. Yes. Amazing. So you actually just got back from there this week, and I'm grateful that you got got back. Actually, I wasn't in the Galapagos this week. I was actually in the Caribbean this week. I was supposed to go back to the Galapagos in April, but unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Ah, bummer. So you are a science advisor for Celebrity Cruises, is that correct? Yes, that's right. What does that role entail? <laughs> and I mean, other than get right. to travel to the Galapagos and the Caribbean and all these wonderful places. Well, so what that entails is I, a couple times a year, I get to go to the Galapagos and I work with the team from Celebrity on their ships down there. They have two, three ships, two hundred, well, one is a hundred passenger, one is 48 and one is 16. And I go down and I work with the, I help train the naturalists. I work with the cruise director and the hotel director to make sure that the science is the best it can be and it's worded in such a way that everybody can understand. I work on I work with the cruise director on all the briefings for all the excursions. I work with the naturalist on making sure the excursions are the best they can be. I work we have created talks for the guests. Last year I worked with a team to produce three videos that are playing on the ships that I'm really proud of. So I do all sorts of things. I also help them with water safety. And so and and one other thing is that they actually use my name in marketing, you know, as sort of their expert. And, and anytime something, if they have questions or things come up, I'm also available. And I also send the naturalist new science. When things come out that I see that I think they might be interested in, I'm constantly sending them information. So it's kind of a broad spectrum of things. And then every once in a while, they ask me to go out on other ships as sort of a headline speaker and talk about the Galapagos and other things. Do you get to get off the ship and go exploring as well, To in addition to all your other duties? I do. I do. I, I think it's very important that I go out with the naturalists because we teach mm-hmm. each other. When right. we go out, there are things that I know about that they don't, and there are things they know about that I don't. And so when I go out with them, we sort of team up to explain things to the guests, but at the same time, we're helping each other learn. Mm-hmm. So I try and go out actually on as many excursions as I can when I'm down there and, and with all the different naturalists. And I think it, because they're trained in some things that I haven't been trained in, but I've been trained in things that they don't get training in. So it's really nice for us to share our knowledge. It's a nice symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I think it is. And I, and I you know, I, and I, I hope, but I think they think so too. So I have a couple more questions as we uh, kind of wrap up here. One of my favorite questions to ask, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And I'm sure you have a bunch. So this is kind of like the most amazing day or kind of the day that everything went wrong, but it makes a really great story later. Um, Is there one or two that kind of pop into mind or one or two that you like to tell? Oh my gosh. There are so many stories. Um, one of the most amazing days, I think, was in the Galapagos when uh, we were getting ready to go out on a hike. 
And all of a sudden, a big dorsal fin popped up near the ship, and it was a, an orca or a killer whale. Mm. And there's a resident pod of killer whales in the Galapagos. And um, we got the guests, the cruise director, are like, get in the Zodiac, get in the Zodiac. <laughs> and we got them in the Zodiac, and we went out, and we couldn't see it. We were like, where did it go? Where did it go? Next thing we know, it popped up maybe 10 feet behind us, and it had a sea turtle in its mouth. Oh my! And while God. that's kind of upsetting, I mean that's nature, mm-hmm. but it was amazing, amazing. Yeah. Um, I've also had a humpback whale and its calf do- one time dove under us. Oh um, my so God. that was that in the, was pretty- in the Galapagos as well. In the Galapagos, um, one one sort of classic story was in when I worked. It was down in the West Indies lab in Saint Croix. We took a a group of students, this was when I was working down there, we took a group of students out to this place. We knew that the dolphins used to show up and they would dive down and scratch their backs on the bottom. Hmm. And so we were like, okay, and we would periodically go out there just to watch them. Mm -hmm. So we got out there and the dolphins were there and we jumped in the water and the dolphins started rushing us. They would, they would swim right at you and about just a couple of feet away, they would turn so you'd get a wave of water, we'd push you back. Well, we realized quickly that they were mating and they didn't oh. want us in the water. And so we got everybody out very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Go away. Yes. They wanted some private time. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've had, I've had, I've been in like places where I would, I did a job where I was working in New Jersey. I was, one of the ways I paid my way through graduate school was I hired out as a diver and I got in some pretty hairy situations but one time we were working in there was so much sediment it was black and so you had to dive by feel you know you couldn't see anything um so i yeah i've had you know storms i've been out in a hurricane i've storms waves sharks dolphins (laughs) sea lions i've you know i have all had all those things happen but um tons of really i once i had a i had a tug of war with an octopus once over (laughs) what (laughs) <laughs> well, so at least Stocking Island, there was an octopus in a pipe that led to our desalination plant and we had to get it out <laughs> and it wouldn't get out. And I, we tried, you know, coax it. So I, I got a lobster, you know, I broke mm-hmm. up the lobster and I was like, here, Mr. Lobster. And I was, I was just snorkeling. I snorkeled. I was like, here, Mr. Lobster. And so the lo- the octopus came out and grabbed it. And it was a big octopus. It was really strong. And so I literally had my fins against the pipe pulling back. And the, the octopus was pulling the lobster in. And, well, I guess you can guess who won, not me. <laughs> he probably had one tentacled arm around the lobster and then seven in the pipe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, he won. So. That's pretty funny. Did you ever get him out? Uh no, we had to take other measures, okay. let's just say. Okay. We could have had octopus for dinner that night, but no. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was a bummer, but we, but we had to get them out of the pipe. We, we tried everything. You did try. You did try. <laughs> we tried. So, and this question gets a lot of people that have uh, more experience. What is your favorite marine creature? And it could be, uh, I've had top vertebrate and top invertebrate or like top three favorite marine creatures yeah it's hard to have a favorite i know but i will say sea lions in the galapagos are one of mine because the young pups and the juveniles will play with you 
And mm-hmm. I don't care how old you are. If you're in the water and they somersault and jump over you and play with you, there's nothing better. Mm-hmm. I, it's just, it's this pure joy that comes out of that. So sea lions have to be one of them. I'm, I'm enamored with octopus. I think they're fascinating creatures in how they change color. The fact they're smart, they're Houdinis. They can you go through little tiny things. They're amazing. So I'm, I'm fascinated. Um, love dolphins also. That's kind of hard to not. Uh, I'm a big fan of manatees. I love, I've gone, I was just recently in Crystal River in Florida swimming with manatees, which. Mm-hmm. It's a good time you one, to do that. Yeah, which I love. So I, it's, I, I don't really have very many favorites. I have lots of favorites. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't have one favorite. I have lots of favorites. <laughs> Those are wonderful examples. <laughs> Do you have advice for aspiring marine biologists or any advice that they should ignore? <laughs> Hopefully it's not advice that they will ignore. <laughs> but, you know, I think I, I, something I said earlier, I think it's really important to be proactive and ask for opportunities. Don't ever be afraid to ask for an opportunity because you know, somebody might say no, but that's not something about you personally. You know, it just may be that that opportunity is not there right then, but they may also say yes. So go out and be proactive. Ask for opportunities. Don't be a try. Don't be afraid to try new things, and explore over time. What What are you good at? What are you not good at? What do you like? What you, what you don't like? I mean, I um, I never expected to be doing what I'm doing now. And, and so I think you have to be open to those opportunities. And the other thing is work hard and perseverance. Those mm-hmm. two things are really important probably in any career, mm-hmm. but it, they're critical to being successful, I think. Absolutely. Now you do have another book coming out. Is it this month? Uh, yeah, it actually, the book just came out. It's called Dangerous Earth. What We Wish We Knew About Volcanoes, Hurricanes, Climate Change, Earthquakes, and More. It's Instead of writing a book about everything we know about those phenomena, it's, it, the book focuses on what do scientists who study those things wish they knew? What are some of the big unknowns? Huh. And it, it was really interesting talking to scientists who, for instance, study glaciers or volcanoes um, and, and about what do they wish they knew. Yeah. So... Could you give a highlight? What was I'll one of the things two. that you learned that you were kind of like, wow? Yeah, so two things. One, in volcanoes, the biggest thing, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of unknowns about all of these things. But in volcanoes, the most common thing scientists wanted to know was the plumbing. They wanted mm-hmm. to know the plumbing under the volcanoes because you can't see it. You can't see the reservoirs and the fractures and the pipes and that whole model of, oh, you've got one chamber and a pipe that goes up to the surface. Yeah, they don't really, that's how it works now. Mm. So, so much so they really wish they could see under the volcano to see that plumbing. Mm. That's probably the number one for volcanologists. Um, for people studying climate change, the people studying, have, one of the really big questions is, how do glaciers and big ice sheets melt? Because the last time that happened on Earth, nobody was here to see it. And so there are a lot of things that they don't really know how it works. Like we're just learning now that some of those big ice shelves are actually melting underneath from ocean water as well as on the surface. It's not just warming on the surface that melts them. 
there's warm water coming up underneath them and melting them. And so is that causing fractures? How fast does that happen? Does it going to happen all at once? There's a lot of questions about that. And it's really important for understanding how far and how fast sea level is going to rise. Interesting. That's I like I like the twist on that. What don't we know? What do we What don't we, we know? know? And, and honestly, you know, I I can't write a book unless it's something that I'm really interested in mm. or I think is really interesting. And so that's why for me, that was a twist that was really important not only for me, but I hope is something that the public will find interesting too. Mhm. Yeah, I definitely want to check that one out as well. <laughs> <laughs> Got two two things as we wind up. I like to end each episode with a conservation topic or an ask for the audience, and it's usually simple and actionable. What would you like the audience to go out and do after they listen to your episode? I'll give you a couple things. Okay. I'm very big on recycling and disposing of your trash properly and trying to use less plastic. Mm-hmm. But I think more important right now is voting for leaders, whether it's your town your state or the country Mm -hmm. believe in science and understand the value of the ocean and land to the planet and to human society. So I think voting for people who, who take science seriously and want to base their policies on science is, I, I just can't say how important that is right now. It truly is. And I love that one because it's something that you can do whether you live near the ocean or not. That's right. And, and it's, it's no matter, it, and it, it's your local, your regional, your state, and national mm-hmm. on all aspects. Mm-hmm. It's a great yep. ask. Well, thank you for being on. If the audience wants to get in contact with you, what's the best place to find you and your books? Well, thank you so much for having me. And you, you've just you've asked some great questions. I've really enjoyed this. Um, they can they can find me on Twitter at E.L. Prager. They can go to Facebook, and I have a couple pages for my books and also myself on Facebook. And also they can find all my books on Amazon, or you can go to a bookstore and order them. Wonderful. And I'll put a links to all of this in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on, Ellen. It was really fun chatting with you. Oh, well, thanks so much, Kara, and thank you, and good luck to you and the audience. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.